You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you have your Bible, and I certainly hope that you do. In fact, I know that you do. This is a church who brings their Bible. Open up your app or go to your Bible. We're going to be in Romans 15. We're looking at verses 7 through verses 13. And uh, if you need to use one of those Bibles nearby somewhere, it's on page 1008, if it's one of the Red Church Bibles. Let's begin our time here as we hear from God's Word by reading His Word. If you'd want to read along with me, chapter 15, verses 7 through 13. It says, now, excuse me, I jumped ahead. It says, therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the Father and so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and I will sing praise to your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear to the one who raises to rule the Gentiles. The Gentiles will hope in him. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, you know I certainly need your help. With a passage like this one and a topic like this one, unity, biblical unity, when we overlook and and display grace and when we must speak. God, I praise you that you would be so gracious as to save the Gentiles. And I praise you that you would be so gracious as to use the Jewish people to declare that message. And I, Lord, I just thank you that all of it is to your glory and all of it is to your praise. So now, Lord, as we seek to hear from you and from your word, as we continue in the worship by working through this revelation to us, Lord, I ask that it would all be for your glory and that we would sing your praises. So open our ears to hear and transform us. And Lord, help me, guide me, direct me, move me and how to accurately and correctly represent your word to your bride. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul is now concluding the argument that he started all the way back in Romans 14, verse 1. We've had a few sermons on this. You remember he said at the very beginning of, of this whole thought uh, in 14.1, he said, except anyone who is weak in the faith. And, and now here he is using the same word, accept, or maybe your translation says welcome. And he's using the same word again. He's saying, look, I opened this discussion this way. I'm coming back around. We're concluding this discussion. And if you remember, he opened it with the words, don't argue about disputed matters. And then he gave us two examples. He said, here, here's what I'm talking about. The examples were eating or not eating food that was sacrificed to idols. And the other one was making one day more important than other days, sort of elevating a particular day of the week for one reason or another. Now, we need to remember that this argument is spoken to a particular audience. So Paul is thinking about a particular people. If you remember all the way back in the beginning of the letter, he said he's writing to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. So this whole thing is to the local church in Rome. 
to a particular group of people. It's not written for outsiders and unbelievers. It's not written to the circumcision party. It's not written to the Judaizers. It's not written to the false teachers and false believers who have snuck in by stealth into the church. He's not addressing any of those people. He's addressing the saints of God, loved by God. Paul is instructing the home team, the home crowd. This is God's people, and this is who he's speaking to, and he's saying God's people, among those saints, they should get along and not get all you know, crazy bananas about minor issues within the church or outside. They should just calm down. We should have unity in the church. He's been making the argument all throughout this. Biblical unity glorifies God. Biblical unity glorifies God. And now after three sermons, Pastor Josiah preaching a couple of them, and then me last week, I'm sure at this point, I hope, I pray at this point, you understand the point that Paul is making. You get it. Biblical unity glorifies God. We should be unified. Yay! But I suspect, I'm thinking maybe at this point, you might be asking yourself a certain question. You're asking yourself about the line. Where, where is the... Where is the line? There's got to be a line here. When do we go from not arguing about disputed matters that aren't very important to addressing important theological issues within the church? What about correction? And what about rebuke? Where was the line crossed when the Jerusalem council had to gather together to work through a debate and handle the question about the necessity of circumcision in order to be a believer. Is that biblical or not biblical? You can read about that in Acts 15, and they determined you didn't have to be circumcised to be a believer in Christ. They had to, they had to draw a line. They couldn't just overlook it. And where was the line that Paul crossed when he had to rebuke Peter to his face? He looked at Peter and said, look, You're in sin because you withdrew from the Gentiles. You're no longer eating with them. You're having an issue of potential racism and fear because you're afraid of the circumcision party that's coming. Paul had to say, I can't overlook that when I need to speak. Where was the line? When did he how did he know when to cross that line? What about when Paul and Barnabas, you might remember, they had such a sharp disagreement about how they were going to do mission work that they ended up parting ways and going about doing mission separately. Now, they were friends. They talked about each other later in their ministries. But what about that in Acts 15? There's obviously a line. We can't ignore everything. We can't overlook every single thing. There's clearly some issues that are just nonsensical, disputed matters. And there are other issues that are important theological matters for the church. How do we deal with this? Now, believe it or not, Romans 15, verses 7 through 13 that we just read, shows us the necessity for the line. It shows us there is a necessity. It actually tells us why it's so important that we have biblical unity. This isn't just about unity. Don't overlook the word biblical unity. Biblical unity glorifies God, and this text talks about it. I'm going to show you the line here in a minute, and then we're going to spend a little time thinking about when do we cross it, when do we not cross it? Where is it? How does that work? But I think before I do that, it'd be appropriate if we actually just walk through the text a little bit and I kind of show you what's there, and then, uh, and then we'll talk about the line. I'm just going to move through this, if, if that's okay. I'm just going to work through it. So look at Romans 15, verse 7. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted you, to the glory of God. There's something going on here that I think is more than just immaturity and maturity. 
new Christians and, and, and seasoned Christians. There's something going on here that I think has to do with being Jew or being Gentile. And the church had Jews and Gentiles in the church. A Jewish person is one who is a part of the Jewish people that God raised up. A Gentile is anyone who's not Jewish. And this might have been a pretty serious source of disunity in the local church there in Rome. But Paul's saying just as Christ accepted both the Jews and the Gentiles, God's people are to accept one another. Just like how Jesus accepted them, we're to accept them. And I really like how John Calvin described this. John Calvin said this. He said, but Jesus shows that with respect to that which was the seed of all contentions, I think he's talking about racial differences here, Jews and Gentiles. That which was the seed of all contentions, there was no difference between them. For he had gathered them both from a miserable dispersion and brought them, when gathered, into the Father's kingdom, that they might be one flock in one sheepfold under one shepherd. And it is hence right, he declares, that they should continue united together and not despise one another, for Christ despised neither of them. I think that's helpful. What John Calvin is saying is that both the Jews and the Gentiles were outsiders to the kingdom of God, despite what they thought about it. They were sinners. They were separated from God because of their sin. But to show love to both the Jews and the Gentiles, Jesus died for them. Jesus died in their place for them so that they could be brought in, so they were no longer outcasts, but could be brought into God's family together, both Jews and Gentiles. Jesus died for both types of people. And us, whether we're Jew or Gentile, he died for those who are lost in their sin to reconcile them to God. And if he would do that for them, both groups, we should be okay with both groups. In Galatians 3, 27 through 28, Paul says, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since all are one in Christ. Now what Paul's not saying is uh, race doesn't exist. Race doesn't matter. He's not saying there are no genders or there are every gender you want to design, especially considering that God designed and created the differences in race and God gave humanity, us, two genders. He did all that. What Paul is saying is when it comes to inheriting the kingdom of God, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to becoming adopted into God's family, every saved person, regardless of of their race, their gender, or any other issue, is on equal footing because of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that would separate us, not skin color, not nationality, not socioeconomic status, not sex, not anything. We are saved in Christ and in Christ alone. And we should remember that as we're coming together as his church. Next, the text says, as we just read, that all of this, everything we're talking about here, is to the glory of God. I know some of you are in seminary, some of you are, uh, like to read books in the Christian circles, and I don't get it, but you can pick up a lot of commentaries that have a lot of debate on this, to the glory of God. I mean, they spend page after page, I think that's how they sell books. I think that's how they get everybody all riled up. There's this debate that says, what is this clause modifying? Okay, Is it that Jesus accepted us to the glory of God, or that it glorifies God when we accept one another? And frankly, it is the dumbest debate to sell books. I don't know why it's debated at all. It doesn't make any sense to me. It seems like both could be true. 
I think both could be true simultaneously. And even if it was one or the other, I don't really think it changes a whole lot. Like, okay, so, so we get it. God is glorified when Jesus saves a lost sinner. Praise the Lord. Every time we, we celebrate a baptism, you know, that angels are proclaiming, look at this public profession, and we join with that. Every time Jesus saves somebody, we celebrate. It glorifies God. And God is glorified when we accept that saved person into our local faith family in unity. All this stuff glorifies God, so why we fight over it, I don't know. And we're fighting over a text that talks about unity and not disputing the trivial matters, and yet we're fighting. Stupid. God is glorified when Jesus saves people, and when we accept them into his family with us together in a local church, it glorifies God. Next, Paul tells us why God is glorified by all of this. Look back down. Uh, We're going to look at verses 8 and 9. For I say that, by the way, when he says for I say, he's not saying God doesn't say this. He's saying I'm not quoting the Old Testament. When Paul says for I say, he's saying this is just me teaching. But a lot of times he's he's not quoting the Old Testament. For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised, meaning the Jewish people, on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the Father. And so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. The verse goes on, but I'm going I'm to pause there. Jesus came from the Jewish people to the Jewish people, to circumcise during his earthly ministry. And he served these people who were people of very specific promises. And Jesus did this to confirm those promises, to prove that God is who he says he is, to show the people and to prove the Father is right. His coming does all that. And by that, they should be praising the Lord. There's another reason that Jesus came. It says that so that, here's the reason, so that Gentiles may glorify God by his mercy. Jesus came so that the Gentiles could could glorify God. And here we are talking about glorifying God and God's glory again. And in this case, God is getting glory because the Gentiles are praising God. And they see his truth, and they see his promises, and God gets all the glory. And God is also glorified when the Jewish people realize that God is fulfilling his promises to the Gentiles. And when the Jewish people see that the Gentiles are being brought in, and when the Jewish people see that the Gentiles are being saved, and therefore they praise the Lord. So in all of this, we have all these people praising God because God keeps his promises and saves Gentile sinners. And Jewish sinners, which is, which is what we saw happen when God said, look, to fulfill these promises, Jesus sent out his Jewish disciples and ambassadors out of Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and beyond with the message of the gospel. And we should all just praise the Lord for that. The Jewish people and the Gentiles together should be praising God that God saves. And when the Gentiles get saved, they also should see that God is who he says he is and keeps his promises. So in all of this stuff, the Jewish people, the Gentile people, everybody should be glorifying God for God's truth and God's kept promises. And then verses 9 through 12 is actually Paul sharing a list of these promises. This morning in my, in my class, we're going through difficult questions in a systematic theology way. I had this huge list of scriptures. And for just a brief moment, I'm like, man, am I just... I, is this too long of a list? Did I just do like one? Would that be enough? But then I'm reminded that Paul also likes to give us long lists of kind of proof texting to make his point. Let's read that together. Look back at verse 9, the second half of the verse now. 
as it is written, now he's got a bunch of quotes, and depending on your publication, they might be bolded or marked. Here comes quote number one. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing praise to your name. Again, it says, quote number two, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11. And again, quote number three, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. Verse 12. And again, so quote number four, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will appear to the one who raises to rule the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will hope in him. And a couple of those are actually mashed together things. So Paul is going all around the, the promises to the fathers to say, Look, if you missed it, if you didn't realize the Gentiles we brought in, you didn't know your Bible. But praise the Lord, God keeps his promises. That's what he's doing there. Praise the Lord. And we should also praise the Lord that God keeps his promises. <clears throat> Now, walk through this. I'm going to save the, the benediction for the end. Um, <clears throat> I told you that... <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Too much lecturing this morning and teaching, then singing my guts out, now preaching. <clears throat> I told you that there's a, a line in the text. This text shows us when we should be unconcerned about divisions and when we should be concerned about disputed matters, theological matters in the church. And you might be saying, I didn't see that where Paul said that line exists. I want to see if I can show you. We'll make a case, and, and if you think I'm wrong, you can still come to me afterwards and we can talk about it. Look at verse 8. Paul says, For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers. Do you see that? God's truth and God's promises, which were written in God's word, are the foundation for our unity. They're the foundation for our unity. Our unity is built on God's truth and on God's promises to the Father. And when that truth is, is threatened... Crossing the line and dealing with it becomes necessary in order to maintain biblical unity for the glory of God. In other words, it doesn't matter if we have unity, if that unity is just built on a lie or empty nothings, built on something that falls short of God's truth and promises. Our unity should be biblical unity. So when we look back on Paul's examples, we see that it's... it's is that me? Sorry. Okay, I thought I was going to make the pulpit fall apart. <laughs> when we look back on this unity, right, we, when we look at Paul's examples, okay, and we see that he has, he has a couple of things that really aren't going to do much harm to the foundation of our biblical unity, you know, if someone out of conscience decides not to eat food, sacrifice to idols, right, who, who cares? I've met Christians who said, well, God prohibited the eating of bacon, and I've been like, well great, you're really serious about that, I could show you that God has now had a vision in the New Testament and all foods are clean and we could go down that road, but if they're going to get all wound up, what do I care if they don't eat bacon? As long as they don't keep me from eating bacon, I don't have any reason to have a dispute, right? Who cares? This is a lot like alcohol in our day. Alcohol in the Christian church has sort of this weird thing about it in some churches, but the, it's important we realize the Bible makes it abundantly clear that drunkenness is a sin. Getting drunk is a sin, that's, that's clear. But the Bible also makes it clear that there is not a sin in drinking small amounts of alcohol in which we see scripturally. Okay, but there are some Christians, maybe some in this room, 
who have decided by conscience that they're not going to drink at all. Maybe because they have a problem with alcoholism, but maybe just they don't want to dabble with it. Maybe they don't care. For them, they don't care. Okay, That decision doesn't change anything in their eternal salvation. Really, it doesn't. Okay, and Romans 14, as we've been going through, has shown us that the mature brother or sister is going to be considerate towards the immature. So what benefit is it if you proceed to argue why they must drink and have to drink and, and should drink because they can drink? None of that matters, right? Who cares? That's stupid. Not helpful. And actually, Romans 14 says, don't do that. We don't want to cause people theological or physical stress in that way when it doesn't matter. Maybe we teach into it, but maybe it just doesn't matter. And if teaching into it is going to cause a lot of problems, then just don't do it. Just avoid it, right? But there are some issues that do have eternal consequences. And if we get them wrong, there's a major impact to our soul. And these are going to be a really big deal. So Paul is obviously, you know, not saying don't deal with any of it. He actually in Romans 15, 8 is saying there is a time. There, there actually is a place. He's drawing a line with the words God's truth and the promises to the fathers. God is glorified when we are unified around biblical truth. But God is dishonored when we ignore the Bible and are unified just for the sake of being in unity. That doesn't honor God. That dishonors God. So he's really saying, look, I'm assuming that your unity is around biblical truth, and that's why these words are here. The kind of unity that's just unity for unity's sake, let's just all get along, let's not draw any lines anywhere, let's just accept everybody for everything, and we draw nothing from the Bible, that's just cheap. It's superficial, it's meaningless, it has no significant impact for God's kingdom. Biblical unity, on the other hand, displays the gospel. Biblical unity points people to God. Biblical unity shows the world that we are disciples of Jesus by how we love one another because how we love one another is defined by the Bible. Biblical unity calls the lost world to join us as we join with God in unity with God and in unity together. Biblical unity is significant. Unbiblical unity is a waste of our time. So seeking unity apart from the truth of God's word is actually unloving towards others. It's actually a way to not love them by just overlooking their shortcomings that might actually cause them to miss the kingdom of God, that might actually cause them not to know and love and proclaim Jesus. When we're not seeking biblical unity together, we're actually doing a disservice to one another and the world. What we're doing when we do that is we're trying to keep the boat from rocking. I just want smooth sailing. I want this nice, easy, smooth boat. And, and you know, when the boat rocks, it makes me nervous, and I hate it, and I don't want to fight, and I don't like the contention. So, so here's what we're going to do. For the sake of not rocking the boat, we're all just going to get along and say nothing. And now the boat might be moving smoothly down the river, and everybody is contently sitting in the boat, but we're overlooking the foundation of the biblical truth that there is a giant waterfall ahead, and we're about to go over Niagara Falls. <laughs> Nice, she says. If we don't anchor to the Bible in our unity, it might be calm for a time, but it will not get us where we truly need to be and want to go. So this brings us to the question, where is the line? Where, where is the line? Where is it, first of all? And when do we cross it? And when do we not cross it? That's what, that's what we're kind of concluding in this whole series through Romans 14 and then into 15. I'm going to give us three conditions... This is for the note takers. I know I don't preach really well for the note takers. 
I don't, I don't dislove you. I don't overlook you. I just don't preach that style. Today's your day. Here we go, note takers. I have... I'm going to derail for one second. We had a mission team here, and the pastor with the mission team was here. And I said, so, we might read this text to say... Blah, 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 blah. And he wrote that down to a serious note taker. Da, 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 da. And then I said, but if we say that, we're completely wrong. Nope. <laughs> he said, you messed up my notes. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to do that. You can actually put numbers to this. You can put a title to your head, heading to it. Ready? I'm going to give us three conditions when we should not cross the line. Just keep our mouths shut. And I'm going to give us four conditions when we should cross the line. Here's the first three. You ready? This is when we don't cross the line. The first condition when we should hold back is this. When we're talking about non-essential doctrines. When we're talking about doctrines that really don't make a huge difference. When the issue is not a core doctrine that affects the essence of our salvation and our spiritual journey and our walk, when it doesn't really impact the gospel, right? It's a, it's, when, when the point of unity can be maintained, whether you have an opinion about a doctrine and I have an opinion about a doctrine, all right? Nothing is harmed, ultimately, between us when one person has a view this way and one person has a view that way, in the big scheme of things. You know, stuff like the age of the earth, right? Not much is going to change if we can't agree on the age of the earth. We might have different opinions and we might hold them strongly, right? But it doesn't really change a lot in the big scheme of things. Music styles, that doesn't change a lot in the big scheme of things. What the preacher should wear when he's preaching, although we'd all agree he probably should wear clothes, it doesn't change things ultimately in the big scheme of things if I wear a tire, if I don't. A thousand years from now, it's not going to make much of a difference for those who are there a thousand years from now, right? These are the issues we're talking about. Don't Press in for talking about these non-essential doctrines if it's going to cause disunity. The second condition in which we should not press in is when it will do more harm than good for a weaker brother or sister. When it will actually harm the immature brother or sister because they're not prepared to deal with it at that point in time. Right? We learn from Romans 14 that if arguing over a disputed matter is going to do more harm than good, then it's not good for the more mature believer to press in. Be patient. Let God work in it. It'll work itself out, but don't do harm in an issue that's going to be worse if we deal with it. If you're going to push into something that's biblically wrong, but it won't be helpful, then just hold back. Let it go. Trust that God will deal with it when God deals with it. The third condition... and. I didn't realize how many of you were... Oh, there's a lot of note-take. I'm, you guys are pulling up your papers. I'm like, well, this is, I should probably think about this a little more. <laughs> the third condition in which we should not get all wound up and press in is if the argument, if the correction and rebuke, whatever, does not glorify God. Right? Having, if, if having the argument does not serve to glorify God, but only causes division and strife, and, and probably only helps you build up your kingdom or helps you make much of yourself, or helps you be right, or helps you feel better about the issue, but does not glorify God, don't say anything. Let it go. It's not healthy. It's not good. We need to glorify God in these things, as we saw in the text. Now, let me shift to the four things that are the conditions in which we should speak. And let's remember something, first of all. I think it's important to remember. 
How we speak communicates volumes. How we speak can be just as important often as what we speak. We're told to speak the truth in love. You, we should take that seriously. We should exercise kindness and grace and understanding and, and care. We're talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's be kind. Okay, here are the four conditions in which we should speak into an issue in the church with our brothers and sisters. When it is an essential doctrine and getting it wrong matters. Paul's not talking about essential doctrines. When he talks about essential doctrines, he takes that deadly serious because the consequences can be grave if we miss the mark and get it wrong. There are doctrines that when misapplied, mistaught, or misunderstood undermine the core truths of the gospel and harm us from even getting to Jesus. In this case, speak up. Right? If a, if a false gospel in action is being played out by a brother or sister is leading someone away from Christ, you know, maybe it's something like the prosperity gospel like we talked about this morning in the class, we need to speak up because we need to get the gospel right. It's important. And even if it's scary, lovingly speak up because eternity might be at stake. The second condition when we should speak up is when it's a matter of false teaching that's leading people astray. Now, this one's very much like the first one. We have something that's false, but in this case, it's a false teacher, and it's kind of a bigger issue. I'm drawing from, say, Jude, for example. If a false teaching is gaining traction and leading people astray, it's crucial that we take a stand. Now, the reason I make a distinction between these two, because in this case, silence when there's actually a false teaching happening, opposing to just someone practicing a false thing, can actually look like you endorse it or accept it or you are okay with it. So when there is false teaching, as we learn from Jude, we have an obligation, brothers and sisters, that we need to speak against false teachers who have crept in and are moving the church away from Jesus Christ, even so much as snatching them from the fire. If there's a false teaching, we have an obligation to speak. The third condition in which we need to speak this would probably applies more to the leadership of the church than maybe the individuals, but as members together in the church, it applies. When speaking will help preserve the health of the church, even if the matters specifically are insignificant, unimportant matters. So uh, imagine for a minute you have this non-essential conscience issue or preference issue, but lots of people are talking about it might be details about the rapture or the style of music or how we do some mission thing, right? And it's, if it was just one person, we would let it go. But what happens when it's half of the room? Then the other half of the room kind of has a different view, and then pretty soon it starts to look really cliquish, and like we're in camps, and then pretty soon we're trying to persuade people, and then pretty soon we're drawing these weird lines. And now a non-essential issue has the potential of actually causing disunity and, and unhealth in the church because of its size and scope. At that point, it probably is incumbent upon the leaders of the church to actually speak into that. And I hope we model that well. If you sat into our classes, a lot of times we're wide open on some of these issues, and I'm good with them, and they come out in the classes, and we're, okay. we're trying to say it's okay. But there comes a time sometimes when it might have to be addressed if it becomes cliquish or, or campish. All right, the fourth time in which you should speak into an issue rather than, than hold back when you should cross the line is if speaking in and having the argument, will glorify God, right? We already said if it won't glorify God, don't worry about it. 
But if it will glorify God, then maybe having that discussion, speaking into the issue is important and you should do it. But do so with caution. Do so with love. And be sure that you're building up the bride of Christ and not yourself. We do this for the sake of Christ's bride, not for the sake of our ego or our reputation or just being right. And so if you know it will glorify God and and help equip and build up God's people, then carefully speak into this. So now I've given you these guidelines about when you shouldn't talk, when you should talk, how you should do this. But we need to remember that it's really important that we do this right. This is not always easy. In fact, often it's complicated. It's difficult. And so I want to encourage you to be praying into it. When to speak, when not to speak, why, how. That you bring God into the entire thing and you pray. And you pray for the other person. And you care for the other person by praying for them. And then you should seek counsel from God's word on how you're going to speak into these things and and what's there. Maybe you're not right and they're right. God's word has to be the foundation of this, right? Because we're unified on God's truth. So just because you have an opinion, you better check your opinion, your thought, your conviction, your preference against God's word. And humbly concede that you may be wrong, you may be right, but the both of you or all of us should get it right on God's word. So we need to consult God's word. And finally, you might need to seek wise counsel about an issue from other brothers and sisters that are mature, that you trust, that can help you. Why? Because this is about unity within God's family. For the people in which Christ gave his life. For the church. For his bride. We shouldn't take it lightly or flippantly that we can have disunity and not worry about it. And then when things turn too messy, we just pack up and go to the next church down the road. Never should that be the case for us. We should be dedicated to stand on God's truth, on the promises given to the fathers, that we would be unified around that. And that we would get to enjoy that unity in God's family. The outpouring of getting this right is beautiful. And we should seek that beauty and we should seek that joy. We should be praying for it in this church constantly, that we would have unity, that brothers and sisters would be united around the truth of the gospel. We should hope to be a church that gets this right, that when people show up here, they say, man, that church, they're unified around God's truth. It's important to them. It's significant. They take it seriously because that is what will change the world. That is what is a witness of Christ to our community. And honestly, let's, let's, I don't want to be in a church where I spend my life arguing with everybody. That sounds miserable. I just want some smooth sailing, but not because we're headed to a waterfall, but because we're on the rock, the stable rock of Jesus Christ in this church. And I hope you want that too. Because all of it, when we get it right, glorifies God. And that's what this last section of this argument is discussing, how important it is that we glorify God. So now, I skipped one verse. I told you I'd like to conclude with it because it's a benediction. It's a prayer, and I'd like to pray it over us. So if you would look at Romans 15, verse 13. It says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Church, let's pray. Lord, fill us with your hope as we stand firm on your word. Lord, bring unity here. God, I would humbly ask if there are any of us that are having divisive issues or some disunity, that you would biblically and rightly bring unity within relationships among brothers and sisters, within small groups and 
study classes and, and youth groups and, and within the church as a whole. God, we're seeking to have this unity anchored in your word, anchored in your promises. Lord, we know it's only possible because you would fill us and you would move us and we would trust your word and walk lightly in this because we have the confidence in what you've told us. So Lord, let us be a unified church and unified around you, Jesus Christ. Lord, that it would be glorifying to you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.